I articulate the script and the off-the-cuff remarks. I am the podcaster who delivers the audio and announces that the podcast episode is born, yet I come to you at a time of death. Does that not disturb you? It should shake your headphones. (laughs) They are shaken. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what they mean when they say I'm shook? The priest in the crowd, hashtag shook. Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. I'm Leo. And my name's Abu. Oh, and we are back at it with yes. just the densest book club episode. <laughs> Incredible. Oh my god. Children of Dune. Episode 7. What an episode. (laughs) What an episode. Some bombshells, some betrayals, some heartbreak. It's true. We have it all for you today, (laughs) folks. I'm excited. But hey, it's housekeeping time before Mm. we get ahead of ourselves here. True. First and foremost, a spoiler warning for today. As you all know, if you've been following along, today will be spoiler free up through the books and pages we have covered thus far on this podcast. Right. So as long as you're caught up with today's reading, you're good to go. Now, these book club episodes, you might be able to imagine, are a ton of work. So if you want to support us, the best way to do that is to become a patron over at patreon.com forward slash gomjabar. We've got a couple of incentives, Mm -hmm. ad-free episodes. Ooh, that sounds great. Bonus clips and bloopers. What? (laughs) And an invite to our exclusive Discord server, which is great and fun to hang out in with all of you. Now, we've got to shout out our Quisatz Hatterack level member, Case Aiken. Case, if you were preaching on the third landing of the <laughs> palace at Arakeen, <laughs> I wouldn't heckle you, not one bit. I'd be in the front row. I'd show up early. I was like, I heard Case is talking. Oh my God, is he going to show up? Yeah. And then he did. Uh, great. Thank you so much, Case. You're the best. Thank you so much, Case. Now, a reminder that another great way to support this show is to get yourself some Dune swag Mm. at gomjabarshop.com. We got apparel. Mm. We got art. Mm. We got a tote bag. Mm. And so much more. All of it custom designed by Leo, Mm. by his dad, Mm -hmm. and by some incredible artists that we've worked with. (laughs) So go check it out. It's true. Also, one of those designs is going to make a lot more sense to people uh, after today's (laughs) reading. Finally, we love to hear from you and listen. You know the email. We know the email. We set it up. Everyone knows the email. (laughs) So send us an email. Gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Your questions. We want them. Your episode ideas, please. And listen, you got pets? Take pictures. Send us the pictures. It's great. We love pets. Podcast at gmail.com. That's the one. That's the one. Okay, game plan for today, folks. Sure. Same as always, we'll start by summarizing today's chapters, then we'll deep dive into some key takeaways, and we'll wrap up by chomping down on some delicious spice morsels. Mm-hmm. So let's get into it. Let's 
do it. After a quick break. <laughs> so stick around. <laughs> right after this, we'll be back with our chapter summaries. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone. Let's dive right in yep. and talk about chapter 30. So today's first chapter begins on Seleucus Secundus, mm -hmm. where Jessica and Duncan are finally meeting face-to-face -face with Faradin. Yep. And this is an interesting chapter. Faradin's feeling pretty good at the start of the conversation here. He's received some really positive reports from Arrakis. Yeah. He's learned that Leto is dead. Yep. And that Ganema is being held hostage by Alia, and that there have been some skirmishes between the Desert Fremen and the Imperial Military Fremen, the ones that work for the Atreides. Right. All of that turmoil has led to an uneasy truce at the moment between these two groups, because Alia apparently has agreed to a trial of possession. Whoa. The accusations of abomination have been made, and she's agreed to prove them wrong by undergoing the trial. Except, yeah, <laughs> a little bit of a catch. Yeah. The date for the trial, still TBD. Not confirmed on the calendar yet. Yeah, and this also feels like, she's like, I'll definitely do it. And a bunch <laughs> of people are like, I don't think this is ever going to happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a completely political move to try and stop the fighting between the Fremen. Right. It's clear to Faradin from these reports that there is unrest on Arrakis and within the Atreides Empire. Right. And it's about to reach a boiling point. Like it feels in these chapters today that we are on the verge of a civil war. And obviously that plays into Faradin's hands and to his plans. That those are perfect circumstances for a tall, handsome, bookish young prince to swoop right in, baby. Mm. Sounds great. <laughs> like after the recording session, he'll be here? Or, oh, no. Uh, oh, on Arrakis. Right, right, right. Uh, uh, yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> we are the tall, handsome, bookish princess, Leo. You and I. We already exist. Oh, I'll take that. <laughs> it's a book club, baby. It's a book club. <laughs> <laughs> now, back in this audience chamber, when Sissia rushes in with a message cube from the Bene Gesserit. Oop. <laughs> and this message cube is basically letting Farada know that the Bene Gesserit believe him responsible for the death of Leto II. And they're basically calling him to a session of the Landsrad. <sighs> All right. Really quickly. We got to apologize to Brian <laughs> Herbert. <laughs> <laughs> we do. We do. So we covered the like House Atreides comic. And at one point, uh, I think it's Shaddam IV is delivered a message cube. Who got the message cube? Uh, it was Shaddam. Remember, they were with the fireflies. The fireflies. Yeah. Stupid-ass fireflies. Yeah. <laughs> so we gave him so much shit. We were like, that's the dumbest thing you could ever create. Totally having forgotten that this message cube exists in Dune, like yep. Frank did at first. Yep. So listen, Brian, 
we're sorry. Clearly, you pulled this from your dad's work. We thought you made it up. That's our bad, our bad dude. Yeah. That being said, I stand by my assessment. <laughs> Message cube is stupid. <laughs> it's a dumb thing. You've got so many other technologies, Frank. I'm just shifting my frustration to Frank now. Those fireflies are still really stupid, though. They are. Okay. <laughs> Truly. Yeah, where are the D strands? Yeah. Why do we need cubes now? It's a confusing jump in technology, but... I miss spitting into mouths. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag bring back the bats. Bring back the bats. They're the best. <laughs> so, moving on from bats and spitting. <laughs> returning to the scene, Faradin basically tells Jessica the truth when she asks him directly, did you kill my grandson Leto too? And he says, I had nothing to do with it. I was unaware of the plan until recently. And Jessica basically connects some dots here between Wencisia's reaction to this and Faradin's honesty and does her Benny Jesuit thing, comes to the conclusion that, ah, uh, it was Wencisia's plan. Right. He also, in another show of like transparency and honesty, hands her the message cube and is like, this is what the Benny Jesuit are accusing me of. Here's the message. And she reads this cube, which actually contains within it a secret Benny Jesuit encoded message for her eyes only. Yeah. And in the moment, she actually thinks how impressive it is that the Benny Jesuit knew Faradin well enough to be like, yeah, this dude's totally going to hand <laughs> the cube over. He's show her. <laughs> yeah. It really shows us how the Benny Jesuit are out here playing this like game of 4D chess. Right. After reading that cube, Jessica basically asks Faradin, all right, so you're facing this accusation. What are you going to do? Right. And this leads to an awkward sort of like mom and dad are fighting at the dinner table moment between <laughs> Wencisia and Faradin. The two like sort of get snappy with each other. And once again, Jessica sort of catalogs this in her memory. Hmm, right. Yeah. This is a like a chip that I could use for bargaining at some point. He's clearly doesn't get along with his mother. And the argument basically ends with Faradin winning and shutting his mom up. Which makes sense because, as we discussed in the last Book Club episode, Faradin holds all the cards here. Yeah. He is critical to Wencesia's entire plan to take the throne. She needs his buy-in. So she can't push him too far because then she loses his buy-in. She has no choice but to back down here in this argument. And this is like, you know, we always say, Leo, this is why you don't put all of your eggs in one crimscale basket. <laughs> right. Diversify your revenue sources. Also because the eggs jumble around and then the basket tightens and then cracks the eggs. <laughs> Again, it's a, it's a good material right. for binding livestock, but <laughs> baskets? No, thank you. No, thank you. The conversation after this little mother-son argument turns toward Alia and Jessica makes her offer. And this is truly incredible. Yeah. Jessica says, hey, Faradin, I will publicly announce that I have come to Seleucus Secundus of my own free will, and all you have to do is give me complete freedom here <laughs> uh -huh. in the castle and on the planet. Sure, reasonable. And oh, and uh huh, you must denounce and banish your mother. <laughs> Holy yeah. shit! <laughs> yeah. And again, when Sicia, for what it's worth, 
this chapter is a real tough look for her. Yeah, yeah. She's basically spending this whole chapter like panicking. She's interrupting. At one point, she's like, "You're bewitched. You're bewitched, Tychonic. You're also bewitched. She's a witch." <laughs> like, yeah. it's it's a tough look for Wencesia all around, and it's clear that she's sort of watching her plans within plans spiral out of her control. Right. Like the reins have been taken from her, and she doesn't know what to do. Right. True. And so this bold proposal comes from Jessica. Faradin doesn't outright say no. He is considering it. <laughs> He's like, that's fair. Yeah. Vanish mom. <laughs> mm, no, think about it's it. incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. Of course, the question is why I agreed to this. Those are some like strong terms considering Jessica is the one that's tied up right now. And Faradin is the one whose castle she's in. Why would he agree to those terms? <laughs> Duncan jumps in and basically explains that the Carino prince finds himself in a bit of a predicament. He's basically managed to piss off all of the major power players in the Imperium. Now, you say he jumped in. I loved this moment where Duncan just smiles and Faradin's like, but do you think I'm amusing? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's an interesting moment because it shows how, although he's very confident, Faradin is like sensitive to these little signs of like maybe not having all of the information. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this next quote that you pulled is superb. And actually, would you mind doing a little uh, acting out this quote with me? Oh, sure. Yeah. You can be Faradin and I will be Duncan motherfucking Idaho. The role of a lifetime. Okay. <laughs> quote, this whole situation amuses me. Someone in your family has compromised the Spacing Guild by using them to carry instruments of assassination to Arrakis, instruments whose intent could not be concealed. You've offended the Bene Gesserit by killing a male they wanted for their breeding pro- You call me a liar, Gola! <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> no, I believe you didn't know about the plot, but I thought the situation needed bringing into focus. End quote. And scene. Oh my god, that was an incredible Faradin. Thank you, I was going to say my stupid voice aside, uh, I actually really like Faradin. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> I do too, yeah. This little moment is is fun for me. Anyway. Yeah. But it, it, this is a bit of a reality check for Faradin. Yeah. Yo, you've pissed off the Spacing Guild. You've pissed off the Bene Gesserit. You are still mortal enemies with the Atreides, the folks in power. You just assassinated the heir to the Atreides throne. You're not out here making any allies, bud. Yeah. And Duncan sort of puts that very bluntly and very clearly to Faradin. Yeah. And this is why he needs Jessica's buy-in and he needs Jessica on his side. It would be another bad look if House Carino was known for abducting the Lady Jessica, the mother of Muad'Dib. Yeah. So he needs her to publicly say, I'm here of my own free will. It's a way for him to save face. I mean, remember one of the previous chapters, Tychonic, Wincisia, and Faradin were all basically saying, how do we win everybody onto our side? Yeah. Against the remnants of House Atreides. And Duncan saying here, listen, I, your plans are kind of working, but you're losing. Like you are losing this tug of war with the major players of the Imperium and basically Alia and her throne. Absolutely. Now, he actually continues. He's not done with the <laughs> truth bombs. This is Duncan Idaho we're talking about. Side B of the record. He's like, <laughs> turn it over. I've got more shit to say. <laughs> Indeed. So this is what he says, quote, Alia expects you to kill us quietly and conceal the evidence of it. 
having rid her of the Lady Jessica, I'm no longer useful. And the Lady Jessica, having served her sisterhood's purposes, is no longer useful to them. Alia will be calling the Bene Gesserit to account, but they will win. End <laughs> quote. Yeah. This is a truth bomb not only for Faradin, but for Jessica also. <laughs> Jessica has that, like, what's the camera trick that, uh, you know in Ratatouille when the chef, like, eats the eats the ratatouille and like <laughs> his like mind explodes <laughs> this is jessica in this moment she's like oh my god <laughs> shit yeah, yeah duncan's dropping some mentat calculation bombs on her yeah it sends her into a tailspin like you're saying she realizes and we also realize the reader that the sisterhood has played her has totally played her true they've secretly promised to put Faradin on the throne through marriage with Ganema, once Duncan and Jessica have been dealt with and removed from the equation. They've sort of gone behind her back in this way. They have their own machinations. They're going to take down Alia. They're going to expect Alia to call them out. They'll politically take her down and then marry Farad into Ganema. They will then control both House Atreides and House Carino on the throne. Right. Devious. Benny Gesserit. Uh, typical. We also learn in this moment that Alia has offered herself as an eligible candidate for Faradin. Yeah. Let's combine our houses through marriage. All you got to do is kill my mother and kill my husband. Easy peasy. Check those two boxes and we're good. Let's get married. It's an interesting dowry. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> what is this, like, Bachelor Imperial Edition? <laughs> Extreme? The stakes are high. I mean, of all of the series of Bachelor, <laughs> stakes are the highest in this one. Yeah. True. There's no roses to be given out. It's murder. <laughs> He's presented you with a Chris knife. You may stay. <laughs> <laughs> now, this next moment we're going to talk at length about later in a takeaway. But suddenly, Duncan cuts himself on the Shiga wire that he's wrapped up in. Yeah. And medics rush in from the other room, quickly administer aid before he can cause himself more harm. Right. And Faradin is confused. He's like, I didn't say I'd accept Alia's offer. Why is he freaking out on me? Right. Like, I wasn't actually going to marry Alia. And Jessica responds with, quote, that's not why he cut his wrist. You're not that stupid. Stop pretending with me. End quote. Right. A lot to unpack here in both Jessica's response and Faradin's reactions and in Duncan's actions. Yeah. We know you have questions, listener. We promise we'll get to it in the takeaway later. So hang tight. For now, let's wrap up the chapter. We basically close it out with Faradin telling Jessica that he accepts her offer yeah. and he'd like her to train him like she did with Paul. And that concludes negotiations and chapter 30. He's like, I'm going to go <laughs> eat some food, read some books. Hey, Tykena, can you banish mom? Cool. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Tykena's like, honestly, yeah. I'm fine with that, too. <laughs> right. Yeah, he's pretty stoked about it, I'm sure. She keeps fucking <laughs> killing my men. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> On to chapter 31. This is a short chapter, but it's good. We're back with Leto, the dead child, <laughs> as he makes a journey across the desert shortly after the Lhasa Tiger incident. Tony and Tina the Tigers are laying dead in the sand behind him. Oh, rest in peace. It's not great. It's 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 sad. Yeah, <laughs> you know, close 
but he made it through. And we spend this chapter in his thoughts. Now, we get a couple of big reveals here, so let's discuss. Firstly, we're told the history of Jakarudu, courtesy of Stilgar's Lessons to Leto. Yeah. Now, basically, a long time ago, a tribe of water hunters called the Iduwali were, like, murdering other Fremen and stealing their water. As Stilgar tells it, these Iduwali lived in Sich Jakarudu. And, quote, that's where the other tribes banded and wiped out the Iduwali. That was a long time ago, before kinds, even, in my great-great-grandfather's days. And from that day to this, no Fremen has gone to Jakarudu. It is taboo. End quote. Now, as we learned in last episode, <laughs> the smugglers very much did go to Jakarudu. <laughs> they were like, well, another taboo place? That sounds great for smuggling. <laughs> they moved in. They renamed it to Fondak. This is where uh, Leto has the sort of poignant thought, quote, it was a perfect place for the dead to hide among the smugglers and the dead of another age, end quote. There's also a nice little moment here where Leto is riding the worm and in this memory, Stilgar's telling him all this stuff. And Leto comments to himself, I know all this shit, like a million times over. <laughs> but I enjoy hearing him say it. Learning it from him teaches me much. Yeah. Which is just a beautiful reminder that it's not all pointless for these young preborn. It's like having the firsthand experiences is useful. Totally. Now, secondly, in this scene, we get some more insight into Leto's vision and the golden path that he's chosen. So, Leto has come to the same conclusion that Alia does a little bit later in the uh, in the reading today. The preacher is Paul. Yeah, and we'll we'll talk about that moment in depth. <laughs> oh yeah. But his thoughts also hint at some fateful choice that he has made at this point. He's he's kind of leapt off of a diving board. What is the diving board? We don't know yet. What's the pool? We don't know yet. But <laughs> he's made the choice. He's in the air. And he reflects that this is a choice that Paul himself was offered. Paul was on the diving board in front of the pool and yep. didn't yep. choose to jump. Quote, Leto sighed. To turn his back on his father was like betraying a god. But the Atreides empire needed shaking up. Shook. <laughs> it had fallen into the worst of Paul's vision. The mainspring of a religious insanity had been wound tight and left ticking. A way out of that insanity lay along the golden path Leto knew. His father had seen it. End quote. Wow. That's a jam-packed observation, Leto. It's, you know, I also have multiple times read that as the mansplaining of religious insanity. <laughs> <laughs> which is also like kind of an accurate take. Uh, yeah. What exactly this golden path is, again, what that swimming pool is, very unclear. Mm -hmm. But it does seem like the alternative is more of this sort of depravity, more of this darkness, and perhaps even much worse. And it also seems like, although he's choosing it for the sake of humanity, it's not going to be great. <laughs> like he talks about everyone hating him and he talks about 
even I think Ganema hating him. Yeah. It's clearly uh, not a great experience for him or for anybody, but he believes it needs to happen. Right. He it, It's almost framed as some sort of necessary evil that he has to play a part in. Right. That like Leto is central in that is necessary yeah. for the future of humanity. We don't know what the pool is, but we at least know that the pool is full of something evil, but we got to <laughs> dive in. Otherwise, the alternative is even worse. Right. Which is, you know, again, like father, like son, a lot of this goes back to er- the earliest visions of Paul Atreides, right? Back in Dune, where he's seeing these not great choices. He's like 61 billion dead, planets sterilized, religions ended. Yeah. That's the best option we got. <laughs> it's like, right. oh no, what was what was worse than that, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Now a storm comes and he kind of nestles himself into a uh, into a still tent underneath the sand. You know, he sends up his sand snorkel and he slowly falls asleep, nestled under the sands, thinking about his planet and his path ahead. Quote, Arrakis, give me strength, he prayed. End quote. Uh, Beautiful. Beautiful. I love, no matter how far we go, characters like Alia, characters like Leto, and characters like Ganema are Fremen. And it's wonderful to remember in this moment his connection to this planet that is so much a part of who he is. Absolutely. And also that he's still human. Yeah. Right? Physically, he is still a nine-year-old boy, and whatever sort of epic vision quest, golden path, future of humanity mission he's on, yeah, my guy's afraid and anxious about it. We can see it in these words. Give me strength, he prayed. He's son of a god, and he's praying... To what? Who knows? <laughs> Who? Uh, to daddy? Is he? Da- Papa? Like, <laughs> Papa? 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 Give me strength, Papa. <laughs> All righty, let's move on to chapter thirty-two. Yep. We return to Seleucus Secundus, where Ferrodin is spying on Duncan Idaho, as the swordmaster is basically like waiting in the lobby outside of Lady Jessica's room in Carino Castle here. Right. The description of the room that Faradin is in right now is honestly kind of hilarious. I want I wanted to share this quote. Mm. <laughs> quote, around Faradin lay the room where Tychonic had guided the training of the Laza Tigers. An illegal room, really. Filled as it was with forbidden instruments from the hands of the Tleilaxu <laughs> and the Ixians, end quote. I mean, I know he's talking <laughs> about like the computers and monitors and stuff. But also, I like to imagine that there's like a trombone in the corner. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, It's one of the forbidden instruments. <laughs> the clarinet. <laughs> right. I That's the exact impression I got, too, where I was like, oh, okay, I see. It's mostly like computers and stuff. But there's probably some like weird sex toys in there or something. Like... <laughs> Is that ecstasy on the table? <laughs> My gosh, that's forbidden. Yeah. Those damn Tleilaxu. <laughs> yeah, the description of the room gave me a nice little chuckle. Yeah. Now, this chapter, we are also basically spending all of it inside of Faradin's head. Like, there's not much plot. He's just sitting there watching Duncan and thinking. Right. So let's once again touch on some of the important moments that come up in this chapter. Sure. All throughout, Faradin is spending 
a long time pondering the enigma of this Gola in front of him on the computer screen. Right. At one point, he even fantasizes about getting his own Tleilaxu eyes. He's like, I wonder what that <laughs> feels like. Yeah. It's a nice little character moment for him. It shows us, again, just how driven by curiosity he is. Yes. Yeah. And how intellectually he just is like obsessed with everything related to the Atreides. And while he's fantasizing about Tleilaxu eyes, the thing he keeps coming back to is wondering why Duncan cut his wrists in the previous chapter. Why would he do that? Right. And as we discussed in a takeaway in the last episode, Faradin is obsessed with the Atreides. He has studied them extensively throughout his life, and he knows for a fact how loyalty is key to the Atreides, how they are exceptional at gaining that loyalty from their subjects, subjects like Duncan Idaho. So why would Duncan be acting like this? Arguably the most loyal Atreides aide out there right. is acting completely out of character. And this is really bothering Faradin as he watches. It's important to remember, as far as Faradin knows right now, Duncan has abducted the Lady Jessica and is seemingly acting against his wife, Alia, and working for some unknown guy named the Preacher, which Faradin, of course, doesn't know is Paul. Right. He's just an annoying dream interpreter. <laughs> right. A giant troll. That fucking guy. Ugh. Oh, my God. <laughs> So with that in mind, yeah, it makes sense why Faradin is like, why the fuck is Duncan acting like this? He's doing very anti-Atreides things out here. Right. That makes no sense. Yeah. In addition to this thinking about Duncan, we learn some other key information from Faradin's thoughts as well. Yeah. First, we're told that the Sardaukar are nearly back to full strength. Right. And could once again rival the Fremen in one-on-one -on -one combat. The issue, of course, is that because of whatever treaties they signed when Shaddam IV got overthrown, they are limited by how many forces they're actually allowed to keep. Right, yeah. So they might be up to full strength with their training and their capabilities, but they still lack the sheer numbers to go head-to-head -head with the Fremen. <laughs> Which, what an interesting reversal of roles, yeah. right? Like, that's almost word-for-word word a description of the Atreides fighting men, right? yeah. But now the oppressive military force is Fremen, and the Carinos are like scraping together Sardaukar. <laughs> like, oh, I hope we can face the Fremen one day. Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah. That's a great point. The tables have turned. We also learned from Fraden's thoughts about some reports that he is continuing to receive from Arrakis through his spy network there. And these reports are pretty dang reassuring. Right. Here's partly what they say. Quote, the new social structure is loosening those old legal restrictions. Discipline grows lax. People of the new communities are more volatile, more open. They quarrel more often and are less responsive to authority. Hell yeah. <laughs> the old siege folk are more disciplined, more inclined to group actions, and they tend to work harder. Mm. They are more careful of their resources. The new diversity on Arrakis could only bring violence, end quote. Yeah, but like the old siege folk are also like, ew, you have tattoos, you're never going to get a job. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, the old siege folk definitely given off some boomer energy. <laughs> yeah. A civil war is a Bruin. 
And again, as we mentioned earlier, yeah. that is a ripe situation for a tall, handsome, bookish podcast host to sweep in and become emperor. Or at least comment on it with, <laughs> you know, <laughs> podcast listeners. Yeah, exactly. But despite these very reassuring reports on the turmoil happening on Arrakis, Froden is still filled with doubts. And his thoughts, once again, circle back to Duncan. Right. Why? Why did he cut his wrists? We learned that Froden himself has actually been consuming a ton of spice in an attempt to peer into the future like Paul. Yeah. My guy, like, wants his Atreides cosplay to be perfect, including <laughs> yeah. the prescience. Yeah. Quote, he longed for the ability to sink into the mysterious spice trance as Paul Mwadib had done, there to seek out the future and know the answers to his questions. End quote. Yeah. And there, once again, we see some of his naivete. We talked about it in the last episode. Despite being brilliant and charismatic, he is quite naive about the realities of the world. He's inexperienced in that way. And he's especially inexperienced with prescience because he has none and has never been around it. He doesn't know about the pitfalls and the dangers. So, of course, like everyone else, he thinks it's like winning the lottery. Everything would be perfect. I just need prescience and I'd know the future and everything would be perfect. Right. And you don't consider the drawbacks and the pitfalls and the real danger that exists with a power like that, like Leto and Ganima know. Right. I'll also say quickly, he mentions these permanent contact lenses that he's wearing that obscure the eyes of a bat, right? Yeah. To like hide his spice addiction from people on the outside. And I saw some like poignant comments about this online. You know, I don't have specific authors to credit, but you know, weeks later, it's still kind of sticking in my head as, as interesting. Mm -hmm. The idea of obscuring his spice addiction, why would he do that? In an empire with so many Fremen as the oppressive militaristic force, it, I mean, at this point, it would be kind of normal. Like, people have seen it, people are familiar with it, but it is the dominant oppressive militaristic force, and perhaps he's trying to swing people back to the good old days of Shaddam Four, right? When, like, your rulers had eyes just like you and were not spice-addicted, like those barbarians from Arrakis. Yeah. So, like, an interesting... It's such a throwaway moment. You know, he touches his eyelids, and he's like, oh, yeah, the permanent contact lenses I wear to obscure my spice addiction. Right. But even that tiny little moment has some real interesting ramifications when you think about why would he have done that? Especially someone who's cosplaying the Atreides. Half of them are spice addicted, <laughs> my guy. Like you got the wrong color eyes. Yeah. So he's got to be doing it for some other reason, some like calculated intentional reason, right? That's such a great point. He's perhaps even positioning himself in House Carino as the alternative. Yeah. You know, kind of leaning into the the turmoil and the cracks within the Atreides Empire. Totally. Yeah. So chapter 32 ends as Froden continues to look at his computer screen and he sees a servant open Jessica's door. Duncan gets up and he enters the room. Froden hits a button, switches to the camera inside the room so he can continue to listen in and he leans in wanting to hear this conversation between Lady Jessica and Duncan. And we'll get to that conversation. <laughs> but first, my God, <laughs> chapter 33. Oh, fuck this one. Oh, 
There are so many parts of this chapter that I'm excited to talk about. Let's get into it. We finally get an answer to this mysterious man, the preacher's identity. So let's talk about it. The preacher enters the thronged plaza of Alia's temple on one of the most important holidays on Arrakis. This is Kwisatz Haderach Day, right? Hey. Federal holiday, paid time <laughs> off. You know, maybe you get an early day out of the office the day before. Probably people get drunk. I don't know. I've never had a Kwisatz Haderach Day, but looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah. Now we're told that there is a warrant out <laughs> for the preacher. Alia has formally filed a uh, an order for his arrest. But on this day of days, with this like crazy packed plaza, she has basically suspended it for the day, right? Right. Don't touch him today. It would be a really bad look. I also still don't know who he is. Like he could be Paul. And if he is the Kwisatz Haderach, on Kwisatz Haderach Day, <laughs> oh my god, that would be such a fucking blunder. PR nightmare. PR nightmare. She'd be like, okay, I'm going to take a year off Twitter and do some soul searching. <laughs> and then she'd come back in like a re- uh, apology video, but it's like three months late on YouTube. And there's like multiple <laughs> camera angles. God, it's so weird. Yeah. Cringe. Those who know, know. Anyway. Yes. So she says, don't touch him. Uh, again, if they fucked up, that could actually spark this full on civil war that's been brewing for about a month at this point. Now, Alia, speaking of, is in the crowd. <laughs> She, the regent empress of the galaxy, is in still suit and a hood. She's like got the sunglasses on, very discreet. Yeah. And she's in the second row in the crowd. She got good seats to this uh, preacher speech. Right. And also recall how similar this is to Paul and Dune Messiah. Oh, true. Doing the same exact thing. Yeah. When Alia was doing her ritual at the temple. I love how this is just a flipped mirror. Of that exact same chapter. Oh, that's so good. I love that. Yeah. And she's taking the opportunity because unlike that chapter, right? Paul just watched Alia was like, hey, look, it's my sister. Alia is in the crowd here going, wait, is this fucking Paul? I can't tell. He looks so (laughs) bad. You know, it's like, how did we get from Ewan McGregor to the Obi-Wan Kenobi from the first trilogy? Like... It's only like t- 10 years or whatever. <laughs> like, how's he look so bad? Look, the sons of Tatooine will do that to you, all right? <laughs> It'll change your actor entirely. <laughs> it's true. Uh, and to be fair, she is going, you know what? Yeah, some time in the desert. He could, it could be Paul. He really could. The preacher begins. And literally, all he has to do is stand up there. He He gets into his position and he just waits. And this like, bustling throng of people dies down. They, they all get quiet. <laughs> Quote. I have come to give homage and preach in the memory of Leto Atreides, the second. I do it in compassion for all who suffer. I say to you what the dead Leto has learned, that tomorrow has not yet happened and may never happen. End quote. <sighs> Which as this is coming from a prescient being, right? Like someone who for most of his life could see many tomorrows, could see many versions of the future to say none of it's promised folks. You gotta just like Leto to learn. You gotta live in the moment and you gotta 
seek out the unknown. It's really a, a heartbreaking but also very poignant thing and, and, and a great way for him to start this little speech, especially considering where he takes it. And this is also basically him beginning this like morning speech around the death of his son or at least whatever Leto is going through, right? Yeah. Paul may, you know, and we'll talk about this in a minute, Paul may suspect that Leto is still alive or may even know that Leto is still alive. But Paul is also telling us tomorrow is not guaranteed. And that could mean Leto dies tomorrow. Maybe he's not dead today. Maybe he dies tomorrow. And what he's done is he's put himself in a lot of danger and a lot of uncertainty. So it's really whether he's talking from the perspective of, I believe my son is dead, or he's speaking from the perspective of, I know he's alive, but fuck, if he's going to Jackarudu, that place is fucking rough. (laughs) Either way, to say tomorrow is not guaranteed is definitely worth thinking about. Now he continues, dropping some (laughs) subtle hints for Alia. Quote, I say to you, that there is another lesson to be learned from these lives and their endings. Alia, alert to every nuance, asked herself why the preacher said endings instead of deaths. Was he saying that one or both were not truly dead? Oof. How could that be? Uh-oh. End quote. Man, Alia, and also Baron, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> In a world of other memories, and Alia knows this better than anybody on the planet, The idea of ending rather than death could be another tip of the hat to Baron, dying but not really ending, right? And it's so interesting that Alia continues to be blind to her own plight, right? The beginning of the book, Leto and Ganima were were asking, how does she not see what's happening to herself, right? She's so, (laughs) quote, alert to every nuance. How is she not aware of what's happening to her? Alia, my girl, like, dead but not ended, that's Baron. Yeah. And that she doesn't see that is funny to me. But also I think that her confusion, even aside from that take, I think her confusion lies in a very literal reading of Paul's words, right? Yeah. Where she's like, what do you mean? Dead? Ended? Isn't that the same? No. Very clearly, someone can die. Paul Atreides, and even the preacher, as we learn that he is Paul, repeatedly refers to Paul being dead. Muad'Dib is dead, right? Right. But the religion of Muad'Dib carries on Muad'Dib as this figurehead. So there are so many ways that this is totally reasonable. (laughs) And that Ali is confused is another sign of the Baron's influence over her, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, the preacher then drops some sick bars (laughs) and points directly at Ali. (laughs) Quote, if you would possess your humanity, let go of the universe. Oh my God. God. Don't. I mean, he says it to the crowd like he's projecting for everyone to hear, but man, the layers in that one sentence, every time the word possess is used, the idea of losing your humanity, right? Becoming abomination or being a capital H human being taken over by a lowercase h human, right? And letting go of the universe as in, yeah, you are on the throne guiding the, the known universe, and you got to let it go. Right. You got to step away from it. Wild. Wild. No syllables wasted. For real. We could learn a lesson from the preacher. <laughs> <laughs> Our episodes would be four minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. We just have to make sure every word has like two or three different layers of meaning. <laughs> It'll take six times longer to write the script, but <laughs> good heavens. Yeah. Now, there's a heckler in the crowd. Some guy like, oh, hey, of course. Boo! There's always this one fucking guy. Always one fucking guy. You're so right. <laughs> and there's a little bit of a back and forth, right? Like this probably a priest. Ollie is trying to place the voice. She's like, who the fuck is that? Which priest is that? Is that John? Sounds like John. Sounds a little bit like... <laughs> they have kind of a back and forth. And the preacher is not pulling punches. He's saying some things that are upsetting people, but he's keeping their attention. And he is railing against this society and the priesthood of Muad'Dib, right? Quote, I mean to disturb you, the preacher shouted. It is my intention. I came here to combat the fraud and illusion of your conventional institutionalized religion. As with all such religions, your institution moves toward cowardice. It moves toward mediocrity, inertia, and self-satisfaction. End quote. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Suddenly, it's just Frank. It's just Frank writing about <laughs> frustrations. Yeah. Really fantastic. Love the voice of the preacher. The way he's written is so good. I also loved this quote. Quote, is your religion real when it costs you nothing and carries no risk? Is your religion real when you fatten upon it? Is your religion real when you commit atrocities in its name? Whence comes your downward degeneration from the original revelation? End quote. Wow. Just the dunking both on institutionalized religion, but also on humanity's tendency to twist and misinterpret yes. yeah. religious text, right? Yeah. And to use it in their own ways, whether for greed, for power, for personal gain. Yeah. You know, the status becomes quo. And <laughs> they're like, how can I twist this old book to keep myself in power? Or like, how can I yeah. twist these old words to make sure that I'm provided for and comfortable. And you watch people commit literal atrocities and you see this weird twisting of ethics and morality and that baseline question. Sorry, where in the text did it say to kill billions? Or like where in the text did it say to do X, Y, and Z? Really fantastic stuff. I, lo I love this stuff. Yeah. And relevant to our discussion in the last mailbag episode about Korba and the Kizarate as well. It's much easier to put words into a dead messiah's mouth than a real one. Yeah, true. And this is Paul being like, you've put words into my mouth, y'all. This is not what Muad'Dib's religion was about. You have corrupted it. You are committing atrocities in its name, which I also want to recognize is like a bit hypocritical considering he himself has blood on his hands. Yeah. Uh, and is responsible for the death of billions. But yeah. again, we know from Paul's perspective that the alternative was much worse. Right. He took the path of least billions <laughs> dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, it would have been 61 billion and one. So really, he saved. <laughs> exactly. It's the trolley problem is at the end of the day. Exactly. So again, we are kind of seeing his religion and justifications from his mind and from his perspective. But I think his point ultimately still does stand that the thing he unleashed has become not the thing he intended. It has been corrupted. Right. It's true. 
he also harps on this point that an absolute future is dangerous, right? <laughs> if only Faradin could hear this. <laughs> the absolute future is, in many ways, death. Like, if you see the future, the future is now. If you know the future, the future is happening. And that's dangerous. It's really, really dangerous. Humanity should always choose uncertainty. Always choose the thing that challenges the new experience, the thing that you're, the unknown, right? Elsa from Frozen 2. <laughs> right now, Leto 2 is out in the sands, into the unknown, right? And Leto 2 has decided exactly this. He's learned his father's lesson. Knowing the future is really fucking dangerous, so try not to, if you can help it. Yeah. Has Paul become a self-help guy? <laughs> Push yourself out of your comfort zone, bro. That's the only way you're going to grow. <laughs> 12 Steps into Claiming the Unknowable Future. <laughs> Written by <laughs> Paul Muadib, the preacher, Atreides. <laughs> so Alia, wrapped on this book signing, <laughs> moves to the front of the crowd. She's kind of, I want to get close. I want to really, I, I, I want to see. I want to see. And she actually even like thinks about, wow, could I kill him right now? What? What? what, what be crazy. So fucking crazy. It'd be so crazy if I just fucking stabbed him right now. Wouldn't that be <laughs> wild? Wouldn't that be just so nuts? <laughs> Jesus Christ, Baron! Shut the fuck. Up. <laughs> shut the fuck up, Baron. It's like, <laughs> wouldn't that be crazy? <laughs> like, yeah, that would be uh, insane. I can't do that. Now the preacher reaches out and grabs her arm. <laughs> oh my God! No hesitation. A uh, shocking moment in the adaptation of this book that we're never going to get, but I hope we get at some point. This has to be a jump scare. Like this has to be head turned away from camera, hand shoots out, grabs her arm. Yeah. Uh, it's shocking, <laughs> shocking moment. And after some talking, you know, he lets go, talks back to the crowd for a bit. He finishes his speech and then steps down and gets close again to her but much more gently than the first time he kind of held on to her with this brutal strength. And he whispers to her, pitching his voice so only she can hear him, quote, Stop trying to pull me once more into the background, sister. End quote. Uh, so cool! <laughs> what a holy good shit. moment after, what, we're in like the 300s now, 300-something pages of like toying and tiptoeing around. I mean, we haven't had anything to say this isn't Paul, but we've never confirmed that it is. For him to be like, oh, sister of mine, stop fucking trying, you know? Yeah, holy shit. <sighs> the preacher is Paul Muadi Petraides. Although it would be funny if like... <laughs> In the adaptation, he's like, stop trying to pull me once we're into the background, sister. <laughs> and it's like that <laughs> more colloquial. Uh, <laughs> she's like, all right, queen, slay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> no, this is Paul Atreides, Paul Muadib Atreides himself. And there are many ways that if Frank had written Alia reacting to this, I would have totally bought. Like there are so many ways that Alia Atreides, governed by Baron Harkonnen, could react to this the way uh she does is we'll use the term again heartbreaking quote she had stood in the sacred presence and now her universe tumbled all about her she wanted to run after him pleading for him to save her from herself 
but she could not move. She stood intoxicated with an absolute despair, a distress so deep that she could only tremble with it, unable to command her own muscles. Ah. Good Lord. My Tleilaxu eyes, Frank. (laughs) Frank. They're watery. They cry. (laughs) (laughs) So tragic. Also for a Benny Gesserit Fremen to be like, I can't move my muscles. Absolutely tragic. Beautiful stuff. Really beautiful stuff. And that's where the chapter ends. Yeah. We've said it before and we'll say it again. Ali Atreides is the most tragic character in this book. Yep. 100%. Hands down. Yeah. Okay. Let's wrap up our summary today. One more chapter to go. Chapter 34, back on Seleucus Secundus. Third time I'm saying it. I'm realizing I got all the Seleucus Secundus chapters this episode. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. We are with Duncan and Jessica in her chambers, right where we left off at the end of chapter 32. Right. There are a lot of layers to this chapter. And the biggest question of all for both Jessica and for us as the reader is whether we can trust a word of anything that Duncan is saying. Right. Because they are both fully aware that there are cameras in the room and that Faradin or one of the Carinos is listening in. They know they're under surveillance. So are they playing for the cameras or is this a true conversation? It's kind of up to us and up to Jessica to suss this out. It's honestly incredible. Like anytime Duncan says anything, Jessica's like, fuck, does he mean that? Right. Or is he bluffing? Oh, is he saying it for the spies? Or maybe he doesn't care? I don't know. (laughs) It's like, yeah, right. She's top 1% of the galaxy in subtlety and like reading situations that she's so lost in this conversation is incredible. Yeah, truly. There's also some things that are intentionally kept from us as the reader. Right. Like we're kept in the dark about, for example, Jessica's plan and her thoughts. She keeps referring to, oh, is Duncan playing into my plans? What is he doing? We don't fully know what her plan is yet. Right. We know she's sort of had an existential moment realizing she's been betrayed by the Bene Gesserit. What's her next move? That's yet to be seen. Right. What also adds to the sort of overall creepiness of this scene is we get this like really simple yet effective description of Duncan's eyes, those Tleilaxu eyes we joke about all the time. And it's quite effective. From Jessica's thought, we get, quote, watching her with those gray metal eyes, which held no center of focus. How blank they were. End quote. Yeah. Okay. Because, listen, <laughs> I've seen some killer fan art of like what hate, like Duncan... Idaho slash hate looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because it does look like we're going to get a Denis Villeneuve adaptation with hate in it. You know, Jason Momoa with metal eyes. What does it look like? But a lot of the images that I've seen include some form of like metal pupil, right? Right. And that's fine. But this little sentence here debunks that. There's no center of focus. They're blank gray metal. Just that sounds so fucking disturbing Yeah, <laughs> that you can't tell like what he's looking at, where he's looking. Yeah. Just blank metal, man. That's it's an interesting look. I hope the art team for uh, Dune 
<laughs> part three, uh, or whatever they decide to title it, take note of this because that would be really cool. Cool to see. Yeah, totally. I mean, so much human communication happens through eyes and eye contact. Yeah. And I think it is a powerful note here that in this very layered communication between Jessica and Duncan, she can't look at his eyes. They're just these blank metal balls staring back at her. Yeah. So with all of that context for this scene in mind, let's stare into Duncan's blank eyes and try to (laughs) unpack this. We learn at the start of this conversation that Duncan at some point was told about the Harkonnen connection, a risky ploy from Paul Atreides to tell Duncan about the truth. And it actually only ended up making the Swordmaster more loyal to Paul to have Paul be so honest with him. Right. And so when Jessica tries to bring up the Harkonnens, Duncan is just like, does she not know that I know? Like, what is this? <laughs> right, right. The conversation then sort of turns toward a larger discussion about House Atreides itself. And Duncan starts talking about basically this glowdown that House Atreides has had in recent years. He says things like, quote, service to the people, Idaho sneered. Ah, many's the time I've heard your duke say it. He must lie uneasy in his grave, my lady. End quote. That's such a great, I want to use that phrase from now on. Like, uh, so-and-so's, you know, turning in their grave. No, weak, lame, boring, (laughs) must lie uneasy in his grave. Lovely. Love it. Cool. Lovely. (laughs) And what he's basically getting at here is House Atreides used to serve their people. I don't think so anymore, Jessica. Right. This is not the house that Duke Leto used to lead. And he also reveals to her that he's heard among the desert Fremen that he has spent time with and communicated with, he's heard them curse the name Atreides and denounce Muad'Dib. He actually goes on to recite the curse in full. (laughs) And it is not only a brutally savage curse, but it is so long. (laughs) Yeah, it really does go on and on and on. Every time you think it's going to end, there's like another diss on the diss track. It just, it's, goes on for so long it's incredible and also did i mention that (laughs) 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 it's extra hilarious if you listen to the audiobook because it literally goes on for multiple minutes he just keeps going and going it's fun it's a funny moment oh my god (laughs) yeah duncan and jessica then start talking about farodin and a potential marriage to ganima which is a point that the two disagree on Duncan doesn't think that Ganema would accept this marriage at all. And he actually can't even imagine that the Fremen are keen on allowing the Sardaukar back onto their planet. After all of the subjugation and oppression at the hands of the Sardaukar that the Fremen and the Zensuni wanderers have faced, can't imagine they'd be super hype on being buddy-buddy with this group. Right. All throughout this sort of argument about the marriage, Duncan is dropping some incredible quotes. But I wanted to share one that's worth dwelling on because it's so good. Quote, the Atreides Empire has betrayed your duke and your son. I loved your daughter, but she went one way and I went another. End quote. Mm. That is a packed quote. Yeah. Notice how he's disconnecting the current Atreides Empire from Duke Leto and Paul. 
these two men that he very obviously admired and was deathly loyal to. And also notice the past tense that he uses with Alia. I loved your daughter. Right. He does not love what she has become now, the abomination she is now. It's past tense. Right. And what he's basically getting at is that House Atreides is, much like Alia, no longer the house that he originally signed up to serve, the house that he lived and died for in his original life. And in a roundabout way, he finally gets to the thrust of his visit. I'm here to submit my two weeks, Jessica. I'm out. (laughs) I quit. Which is shocking to hear from Duncan motherfucking Idaho. Yeah. Almost defined by his loyalty and his never going to quit attitude. (laughs) He's the dude at the water cooler who you're like, oh, this guy's going to be at this company for another 20 years for sure. And he's like, actually submitted my two weeks yesterday. Yeah. Right. Conversation. Bunch of spies listening in. That's great. (laughs) What fucking company do you work at? There's a bunch of spies listening in at the water cooler. Uh, It's one in which like paranoia and antagonisms rewarded i don't know it's just a lot lot. (laughs) yeah i also wanted to point out in this conversation duncan you know he is talking about house atreides being unrecognizable from what it was but duncan doesn't have the sort of like drinking the kool-aid disillusionment that even like readers of the first book might have where you go house atreides is good 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 they ain't never done nothing wrong no like he's got a very real almost cynical, practical look at what this great house is and does. And I loved this little acknowledgement of something we've discussed about like Duke Leto, right? Quote, I have but to close my eyes and I hear your Duke telling me that real estate is always gained and held by violence or the threat of it. Fortune passes everywhere, as Gurney used to sing it. The end justifies the means... Or do I have my proverbs mixed up? Well, it doesn't matter whether the mailed fist is brandished openly by Fremen legions or Sardaukar, or whether it's hidden in the Atreides wall. The fist is still there. End quote. Oh my god. Like, it's so easy to see House Atreides as the exception to this imperium that's like riddled with great houses willing to screw each other over. But even Duke Leto in... Children of Dune were learning that he was like, yeah, no, I mean, the threat of violence is always there. We just hid ours. Our threat of violence is hidden in our law and in our organization in a way that's much harder to kind of suss out. Yeah. It's just these little moments that take heroes off of the pedestals that we so quickly put them on. He may have the best beard in the galaxy, but Duke Leto was not a saint. Truly. Yeah. Yeah. He's really speaking some truths here that go unsaid or that I'm sure many of the houses in the Imperium want to keep under wraps, right? He's saying the quiet part out loud. Yeah, totally. So after submitting this two weeks <laughs> yeah. to Lady Jessica, telling her he's formally leaving his post with House Atreides, he also emphasizes that he's doing this at the preacher's bidding. I am quitting because I'm going to go work for the preacher. And go join these desert Fremen. Right. For a moment here, Jessica, (laughs) this is in fucking credible. Jessica considers killing Duncan Idaho. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Sure, Jessica. Uh Uh-huh. But in a brilliant move, he is more than prepared for her to do that. And she instead ends up bitterly accepting his resignation. 
It's a stunning moment. It is. I love it so much. Like one of my favorite moments in the reading this week. Like she's trying to distract him by changing the subject as she's like, I'm going to get into a position to attack him, which is like, who the fuck do you think you're talking to, Jessica? (laughs) And he interrupts her with, quote, you do not distract me, end quote. Oh, my God. Like, remember, she is within the top 1% of capable humans alive. But as the preacher said, Duncan is a jewel beyond price, right? That's how he describes him to Tychonic. And in this scene, he's noticing that, like, her tricks don't work on him, right? He said it in the ornithopter, you can no longer use the voice on me, right? Yeah. When he was uh, first abducting her. It's, like, we joke about him being overpowered, but this little moment is honestly one of the most overlooked moments in his prowess, not only in observation and, like, seeing through, you know, the layers of deception, but also just in his, like, I at no point in this chapter was I like, she has a chance <laughs> at winning this fight. Right, right. It's it's wild, uh, but just a, a wonderful little moment. Loved it. Yeah, totally. Ugh, such a good chapter. Well, our summary today and this chapter wraps up as Duncan backs out of the room. They throw some final barbs at each other, but it, it's still a like sad moment. Totally. You you can tell they're sort of snapping at each other because they're both quite emotional at this breakup that's happening. Yeah. And as Duncan steps out of the room, we understand that mm, there's perhaps more at play here than we know. Right. Because his final thoughts are, quote, it's done. And they can read it in only one way. End quote. You won't stop us, Duncan, from reading it a thousand ways. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. So clearly, this conversation was for the cameras. There might have been some truth in there. Right. But there's more here than meets the eye. And we'll just have to find out what that is. Plans within plans. You love to see it. Dune, baby. Dune, baby. All right. That wraps up our chapter summary. What an incredibly dense set of chapters. Yeah. Let's take a breather here, but after the break, we will get into a couple of key takeaways, and then of course later in the episode, we have some spice morsels to chomp down on. Mm. So don't go anywhere, folks. We will be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you enjoyed your break. Let's get into our key takeaways. And we've got some morsels to dive into a little later. Our first takeaway today is, hey, Duncan, what you thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you Duncan dude, what are you thinking? Let's talk about this moment where Duncan Idaho basically cut his, like, artery on the Shiga wire. Yeah. And also kind of just why he's acting so out of character, right? And we can focus on the Shiga wire wrist cutting moment as a sort of embodiment of all of this weird behavior 
also because I think when we're looking at his words and his other actions, we have to consider the the same thing that Jessica was being stuck on in that last chapter is like how much of this is a performance and an act. His cutting his artery <laughs> was not an act. <laughs> like he straight up yeah. seems like put his life in jeopardy, which is wild. And we wanted to explore a couple of theories as to why this is. Because across the board, if you look up Children of Dune, like discussions, this is one of the things a lot of people ask about. So we wanted to talk about it. Yeah. His actions are very confusing. And so it's worth maybe exploring some theories as to what's going on here in Duncan's head at the moment. Right. Yeah. The first theory we want to talk about is basically that Duncan actually tried to kill himself with the Shiga wire because he's having some sort of existential crisis. That's theory number one. To me personally, this one feels very much like a surface level reading of the situation. And I like it less than the other theory we're going to talk about. But regardless, it still has some merit to it. So let's talk about it a little bit. Sure. Consider this quote from when Faradin mentions Alia as a potential bride. Quote, Idaho gave an involuntary start, controlled himself. Blood began dripping from his left wrist where the Shiga wire had cut. End quote. Yeah. The wording here implies that he lost composure, right? Involuntary start, then controlled himself. Right, right. Which is understandable if you consider that it's his wife and the love of his life that they're talking about here. Right. As a potential political marriage to this rival house. So perhaps the response here is like an emotional involuntary response to where he causes himself harm because he's pained by this. We know he truly loves Alia and he's heartbroken by what has happened to her. Reddit user Chudez also posited this idea. Chudez wrote, quote, I believe Duncan decided to cut himself on the Shiga wire for a very human reason. Alia was no longer the same person he loved and he couldn't bear the thought of being returned to her, end quote. Mm, yeah. And this is another layer to that. Not only is it this marriage proposal that they're talking about, but also the fact that Faradin and Tykenik are wondering whether they should keep Jessica here and then just send Duncan back home. Right. And maybe that thought is too much to bear for Duncan to be sent back to Alia to f- face what she has become once again. And also... He's got to know that she will just find some way to kill him Yeah. if he is sent back. Her entire intention with telling him to go to Seleucus Secundus was for Faradin to kill him. That was part of her plan. So if he shows up again, she's going to find some other way to do it. Right. So maybe taking all of that into consideration, he's perhaps protecting himself from that trauma or he doesn't want to face that trauma to sort of protect himself from having to go back face Alia again, face this abomination again, and then perhaps be killed by her. Right. Finally, for this first theory, it's also worth considering that Duncan has potentially lost hope in House Atreides. He made that pretty explicitly clear to Jessica in that last episode. And if you take into account the things he's seen in the last couple decades, kind of starts to make sense why he'd lose hope in House Atreides. Yeah. He lost the two men that he was most loyal to and looked up to, both Duke Leto and Paul Muad'Dib. He has watched his wife become abomination, and he has watched Lady Jessica fall back into the sisterhood's fold, work for them, 
a group that he obviously distrusts deeply. Yeah, and also he's calculated they're using her with the intention to get rid of her. Exactly. So taking those things into consideration, like we mentioned earlier, almost his entire identity has been tied to this house. His entire purpose has been in service to House Atreides. Right. Existentially speaking, like what does it mean for him to watch it sort of crumble before his very eyes over the last few decades? Right. He's got to be questioning what his place is. And so perhaps this Shiga Wire moment, perhaps his resignation with Lady Jessica, all of it is some sort of what is my purpose? Some sort of like midlife crisis happening <laughs> for Duncan Idaho. So that's theory one, is that this is truly a human response to someone who has lost his way at this point in his life. As always, the midlife crisis comes 11 years after you died and were brought back as a guy <laughs> and then reawakened through trauma. And now you're a Mentad Zin Sunni philosopher and you're like, maybe I should buy a Corvette. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. The post-life, mid-life, re-life crisis <laughs> that hits all of us eventually. Uh, can't wait for mine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, pretty surface level and also common. I, like I saw this take from a lot of people. Yeah. Which is fine. It does feel a little bit like we're not giving <laughs> Frank credit for uh, his layers within layers approach to writing. And it, actually, I'll say, we're going to talk about this second theory. It's possible it's a marriage of the two. Absolutely. I'm sure there is some truth to everything we just said. But I think overall, this theory is a little bit more plausible to me, and it goes a little bit deeper. And that theory is that he is testing Faradin with the intention to basically confuse and intrigue the young Carino ruler, basically. And here's the, the support for this theory. First off, throughout this book, we've seen that Duncan is still a very formidable force in understanding people, uh, strategizing, you know, executing plans, reading the situation, and he's a mentat. So he's got a lot of mental horsepower driving his actions, right? And although he's resolute and is seen with Jessica, right? She notes, she notes like, oh yeah, he'd be fine to die in this moment. He doesn't exactly read as like suicidal or existentially bothered, right? Yeah. Like, it's not like he tried to kill himself and was like, fuck, I know oh, life isn't worth living. And you know, he, he's not in that headspace when we see him waiting. And even Faradin notes that looking at him through the spy cameras, he has this air about him of immovability. Like he's just this permanent fixture in the universe yeah and that doesn't sound like someone who was heartbroken and decided to end it all because of some existential thing that just doesn't track i don't think i also noted it is possible that his involuntary start fraudens like i was considering marrying alia and he's like huh? <laughs> because she's a monster <laughs> she's baron harkonnen 2.0 <laughs> So this Faradin prince is like, I've heard she's beautiful. He's like, uh, <laughs> right. uh, okay, control yourself. <laughs> God. I am considering fucking Voldemort. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, yeah, I'd also have a jump start if I knew firsthand how awful she is. Yeah. that That's just an aside. My theory is that 
Duncan is basically resolute in keeping himself alive (laughs) and following through with the preacher's commands, but also some of his own planning and scheming, right? Plans within plans. Yeah. And through Mintak computation has figured out, I need Faradin to be curious. I need some like wiggle room. And Faradin is the type of person who will sit back and observe if he's unsure, right? And gather more data. He's bookish. He's going to turn to his books. He's not going to like take some bold action without first thinking about it. And considering Faradin, who's literally like, maybe I should scoop out my eyes so I have Gola eyes. That'd be dope. (laughs) Clearly, he's so driven by his intellect and his curiosity. The idea of let me seem like I'm throwing my life away, which makes no sense because that's going to stick in his brain. He's going to be so caught on that. I'm going to have the freedom to kind of do whatever I want for a bit. And we see that work. Like, obviously, that's with a certain reading of this intention. But we see Faradin get stuck on that moment. And in the chapter that happens all within Faradin's head as he's watching through his spy cameras, four times, whatever he's thinking about pivots to, why did he cut his wrist? Why did he do it? Yeah. And literally, Frank (laughs) ends the paragraph, new paragraph, why did he do it? New paragraph, additional thoughts. And it happens four times. I mean, Faradin really spirals in that chapter. Right. But I really love this first aside, and it stands out more and more to me as I was kind of looking at all of this. Quote, why did Idaho try to kill himself? Was that really what he'd tried? He must have known we wouldn't permit it. End quote. And yeah, he's a mentat. He knew you weren't going to fucking let him die. I think if Duncan motherfucking Idaho wanted to off himself, he 100% would. Yeah. So it's probably column A, column B situation. But I think this idea of I need wiggle room, I need Faradin to give me space. So I'm going to do something that makes no sense to him to gain myself some leverage because he's such a curious person is a big part of why he did that. Definitely. I think another idea that fits within this theory of testing Faradin. I saw a lot of folks online discussing that the Shiga wire cutting situation was also Duncan basically testing how far Faradin was willing to go yeah, and how valuable he and Jessica are to Faradin. Right. Because recall the instant he cuts his wrist, <laughs> medics fucking rush into the room. Yeah. Those people were on standby, you know? Right. Like the the first aid kits were already out and ready to go. <laughs> yeah. They already had the sutures out. It's like, how did you... I mean, <laughs> yeah. I guess it's Shiga wire. <laughs> it's like one thing that's going to happen. Yeah. Right. So that I think fits into this as well. Like he's doing this thing to get inside Faradin's head, but he's also testing the waters of how much does Faradin care whether we live or die? Yeah. You know? It's good data for a Mentat, no doubt. Yeah. Data collection. Yeah. And considering Faradin is one of the major players of the book so far, knowing more about this young guy is going to be very, very helpful for Duncan wherever he ends up, right? Absolutely. I also like that Faradin was the first to be like, and let's get him out of those. (laughs) Like, all right, (laughs) shit's going sideways, but he's very quick to act to preserve Duncan Idaho. To your point, that's good data for Duncan. Yeah, exactly. So those are some possible theories. 
that explain Duncan's action in today's chapters. Of course, these are theories we found in our research, but all of this is up to interpretation. Right. We'd love for you, dear listener, to send us your thoughts on Duncan's actions as well. Yeah. Comjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Perhaps we'll share your theories in an upcoming mailbag episode. It's true. Now, the next takeaway we wanted to spend some time talking about is Paul. <laughs> Paul Atreides. Oh, Oh, God. you mean the preacher? Yeah, the preacher. And thank <laughs> God we can say that now. Oh, my God. We had to cut out so many takes recording the last, you know, six book club episodes. We're talking about the preacher. We'd be like, the preacher, this, this, and this. And that's why, like, as Paul, he'd blah, blah, blah. Oh, we can't say that. Oh, no. <laughs> awful. Awful stuff. Uh, but now we can we can say, yes, Paul Atreides... We're talking about him because with his true identity, a lot of stuff starts kind of falling into place. Yeah. So with that in mind, we wanted to revisit some preacher moments from the first half of the book and kind of recontextualize them, knowing that it's been Paul this whole time, basically. Yeah. And again, this has been really hard not to do. Yeah, true. In these book club episodes, this whole time we've been like, fuck, that's great foreshadowing that we can't talk about yet. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So this won't be comprehensive by any means, but let's revisit some key preacher slash Paul moments from the first half of the book that take on new meaning once we know this is the Messiah himself. Right. And the first moment we wanted to chat about is the dream interpreter scene on Seleucus Secundus with Faradin, where he's trolling Faradin. This suddenly takes on a whole new meaning once we realize that Paul is the dream interpreter here, knowing what we know about his prescient visions, yeah, which have often been referred to as his waking dreams. It's clear to me, with this context in mind, that Paul is literally here to test Faradin to see if this Carino prince has an ounce of prescience within him. Sure, yeah. And when he ultimately doesn't interpret Faradin's dreams and says, quote, my words would only confuse you and you would insist upon misunderstanding, end quote. What he's doing there is basically telling Faradin not to read into these dreams. They're meaningless. You know, whatever like moon crashing from the sky into a cup full of water that you're dreaming about or whatever. You're just sure. thirsty, my guy. Drink more water. <laughs> yeah, it's possible. I There are two other readings of that that kind of come to mind. Mm -hmm. First being like, you have potential, but at this stage, without proper training, whether Mentat or Benny Gesserit, you can't deal with the level of stuff that I would be telling you about, right? Like, you're asking Kwisatz Haderach questions. I can't give you Kwisatz Haderach answers, dude. You, you're not ready. Yeah. You don't have the training. Totally. Like, maybe the dreams do have some merit, but, you know, we talked about Paul only being the Kwisatz Haderach because of his Mentat training, giving him that sort of framework to like gather bits of disparate data <laughs> he's like okay so a moon crashed into a cup of water okay so uh there's a strong wind on caladan uh, in six <laughs> weeks also uh yeah gamont has fewer revenue uh in the next two months right and faradin's like what does that fucking mean? And Paul's like, see, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> My guy. <laughs> You're misunderstanding. Like, Yeah, that's a great point. It's, it's possible. I don't know. I, you're probably right, though, because Fraud probably had some stupid-ass dream. 
He's like, oh, my <laughs> mom was complaining to me about homework. I don't know. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the only reason I don't think Froden is prescient at all is because in today's readings, yes, he tells us that true. he's been like overdosing on spice and nothing is happening. You know, <laughs> yeah. like if he had any ounce of prescience, we know spice is a catalyst to activating and enhancing those powers if you have them. It's true. And if nothing is happening, then we have to assume that even these dreams he tells Paul in this scene are just that, just normal-ass human dreams. But you're also right that Paul is also saying, hey, you are you haven't been trained by my mother in <laughs> yeah. the ways that I have been. So even if I tried to explain this to you, you simply wouldn't understand. I, I do like Paul and even like anyone related to the Harkonnens. House Harkonnen and House Atreides are both byproducts of Bene Gesserit meddling, like indefinite Bene Gesserit genetic meddling, right? Yeah. Yeah. House Carino's just been here. <laughs> they're just chilling. <laughs> and of course, they're also suspect because they've had Benny Gesserit, you know, at their side the whole time. But you think about like, it's possible that like Fade Rautha, given Spice, could have prescient dreams. Right, right. Like, who knows? Like, maybe he's sensitive to it. Farad's out here just a, he's just a side character, dude. Like, <laughs> you don't have prescience. Are you kidding me? None of the Benny Gesserit care about you. So, no. Yeah. yeah, have as much spice as you want. Put in your fancy contact lenses. It's not going right. to happen for right. you. Yeah, uh, the scene just takes on so many more layers once you know this is Ball standing here. Yeah. Additionally, I could not help but laugh out loud at this thought that my guy is just wearing this Ixian mask as a flex. <laughs> yeah, because recall that the mask doesn't have like eye sockets or anything. Like, yeah, yeah. You look at the mask and it's blank, and you're like, "How are you seeing through this?" We know that Paul is physically blind, and this seems to imply that he's still dipping into his visions because he's sort of walking around here and he faces Faradin and he's doing things that you don't think a blind man would be able to do. Right. And, and so perhaps he's doing that thing where he peeks into his future vision just to like get his surroundings real quick. Yeah. Or he's still on the same tracks that he got locked into, right? Like, yeah. There was a quote earlier, right, in the book where the preacher was, like, longing for a stone out of place. Yes, absolutely. Whether he's actively doing it, like, oh, I have to do this to continue, you know, to salvage what I can to be this player in the game again that I <laughs> abandoned. Maybe he's actively doing it or maybe he's stuck again on the rails. Either way, we know he can fucking see without the mask. <laughs> like, right, right. The mask is just a huge troll. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best. Uh I also love this element of like, Faradin's out here. He's been dreaming of being Paul Atreides his whole fucking life. He's cosplaying as him. He's like, yeah, he had battle language. I want to have battle language. Right, here right, he right, is right. meeting Paul Atreides, <laughs> getting angry like, oh, dream interpreter, who are you? It's like, oh my God, if you so only knew, funny. dude. Oh, so good. So funny, right. Uh, it's like Dwayne The Rock Johnson saying hi to me, but he's wearing a mask and I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, Henry Cavill at like Comic Con wearing like, <laughs> one of those generic masks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's also another layer here that Faradin and Tychonic are straight up threatening to kill the preacher if right. he doesn't interpret the dreams. Hilarious. Yeah. And Paul is just so confident. He's like, yeah, no, you won't. You're not going to touch me. If we assume that he is either still locked into those prescient vision paths or still dipping into prescient occasionally, I like to think that he 
already kind of looked at this meeting in the future and was like, they're not going to kill me here. Yeah. And that that perhaps explains why he's like so brash and overly confident in the face of literal death threats. Right. This also leads to a larger question, basically, about what the fuck Paul is up to, right? We kind of talked in a previous book club about the preacher's motivations, but now we have to think in larger terms, knowing this is Paul. He's out here doing something that he's perhaps seen in his visions, and we have to assume that he's still trying to guide humanity in some way, right? guide some sort of future for them to avoid some of the darker visions that we know he saw back in Dune and Dune Messiah. He's out here trolling everyone, right? He's not just like in the desert doing small time shit. He's out here messing with his sister, talking to the Carinos, getting Duncan Idaho back under his fold, playing 40 chess with his mom. <laughs> yeah. We thought Paul had retired at the end of Messiah, but to me, it's clear that he can't help himself or that he has no choice. Right. And he's still in the game. Yeah. Deaths, not endings. Paul Muadib is dead. The preacher lives, but yeah. his role hasn't ended. Truly. And Alia's like, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Alia, jeez. The next moment we wanted to talk about is, you know, it's like these scattered little bits of the preacher, a.k.a. Paul, knowing stuff that he really should not be able to know unless he is Paul himself, right? Right. And there are numerous examples, right? Like throughout the first half of this book, the preacher knows so much about inner desires and loyalties of these major players like Alia and Duncan and Stilgar. And no fucking kidding. It's Paul. Right. It's, this is his family, people that he spent years alongside getting to know intimately. So right. he would know this stuff. And the most obvious example is, is how he you know, knows basically the secret way that Paul and Duncan Idaho used to communicate, right? <laughs> Their uh, pig Latin, cool handshake, <laughs> butt bump communication. Right. Ooh. Duncan's like, he bumped my butt. <laughs> Only Paul knew to do that. <laughs> and, you know, on a reread, when you're kind of keeping in mind that the preacher is Paul, it does seem like Duncan's 90% sure that he is Paul. Uh, after that handshake moment, right? Yeah. Before it, the preacher is just another player out in the sands. But after that moment, Duncan's like, oh, fuck. I'm loyal to House Atreides. We got Jessica and Alia. I thought that was confusing. And now Paul, oh, God, Paul is back. Yeah. Oh, and he's old. He's got a hand in his bag. Why does he have a hand? <laughs> he's glitter. He's like a stage kid now. He's very theatrical. Yeah. So interesting to consider that and also interesting to consider his resignation. Now, he's saying to Jessica, House Atreides is no longer what it was. I'm leaving. Goodbye. <laughs> Two weeks. You've taken enough of my life, corporate America. You know, sorry, <laughs> corporate Atreides. And ultimately, if he's saying, I'm going to the sands to work with the preacher, back to the desert to work with the preacher and the Fremen, he's saying... Nah, I'm still with Paul. Right. I still believe that he is going to be the closest to that Atreidean, those Atreidean values that I so miss from you, 
back in the fold of Benny Gesserit manipulation and Alia back in the fold of Baron Harkonnen. <laughs> <laughs> Poignant to think about his resignation, not even really being a resignation, right? Yeah. There are other smaller examples as well, right? Like uh, I think about the moment that Javid was talking to Jessica and saying, oh yeah, the, the preacher, uh, preacher said you wouldn't denounce him. You're going you're gonna <laughs> to denounce him, mm-hmm. Jessica? Hmm? He said you wouldn't, right? And we're like, wow, how does the preacher know? This is Paul. He's like, yeah, no, my mother's not going to denounce. What are you talking about? It's Jessica. I know her. I know her super right. well. Right. And even in that sermon, and I think this was a little bit after that, the sermon where he basically is like, I've got four messages to four people who I knew very, I mean, that I've never met. <laughs> From Irulan to Stilgar, Alia, Duncan, saying things that he really shouldn't know unless he had a sense of the future, but that's impossible because no one can How see the future. Oh, wait. Right. <laughs> wait, he totally can. Cool. <laughs> Alia is like, you know what? Irulan has to die. I got to get rid of Irulan. Moments later, the preacher is like, Irulan! <laughs> hey, Irulan, guess what Alia's thinking? <laughs> And Alia panics. Quote, why does he warn her to flee? My decision was just made. <laughs> a thrill of fear shot through Alia. How did the preacher know? End quote. How could he know? It's, it's a mystery. Incredible stuff. And actually, speaking of his sermons, this leads us right into moment three that we wanted to talk about. Because yeah. we want to spend some time dwelling on the sermon from today's reading. Yeah. Because... Again, here's that word, heartbreaking. It is so heartbreaking rereading today's chapter, knowing this is Paul talking about his dead son and pleading with the masses to avoid the pitfalls of following a Messiah, right. to lean into the uncertainty, to avoid the temptation to know the absolute future. That's coming from a place that he knows intimately well. Yeah. Just go read Dune Messiah. It's <laughs> awful. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I do want to take us down a bit of a rabbit hole, if y'all will allow me. Sure. Because I did just say his dead son. Right. But I don't think Paul actually thinks Leto II is dead. Sure. If we assume that he has prescient visions, then we have to assume he knows Leto II is not dead. His visions would have shown him that his son survives the Laza Tigers, at least in some visions. Right. But at the same time, it's made very clear to us in the chapter that this sermon that he is giving is very emotional. For example, consider this quote. Quote, the son of Muad'Dib risked, the preacher shouted, and Alia heard tears in his voice. Muad'Dib risked, they paid their price. End quote. Yeah. So why the tears in his voice if Paul's visions would have shown him that Leto II is actually totally alive and well? He's chilling in a still tent somewhere right now. Yeah. Well, recall what Leta 2 is up to, why he's chilling in that still tent. He is out here chasing this golden path that his dreams have shown him. This path that just today we learned from the reading requires some sort of great sacrifice, will require some sort of evil, and that Leta 2 will play a central role in it. It'll be so terrible that even Ganema will end up hating him. That, I think, is what Paul is heartbroken about. That, I think, is where the tears in his voice are coming from. 
he realizes this is the path that his son may take and will very likely take. And he's trying to save his son from that horrible future, from that horrible fate where he has to make these evil decisions in the evil pool. Right. And I think the frustration for Paul comes from the fact that despite what he's seeing in his visions, he doesn't have absolute control. Because remember, prescient beings don't see each other in, in each other's visions perfectly. Right. It's only they, they see each other as sort of gaps in the vision. Right. And so if anything, Leto too, his son, and also Ganema, his daughter, are probably the only two beings that Paul doesn't have complete control over. Right. Because they share his Kwisatz Haderach genes and are prescient in their own way. Yeah. So going back to that quote from earlier, the son of Wadi brisked, Wadi brisked, they paid their price. To me, like sort of wrap up this rabbit hole, I think to me, the takeaway here is that Paul dabbled in prescience and he risked the future and he has paid the price. We see him pay the price in Messiah, losing Chani, walking out into the desert. Right. And I think now here in the third book, he has come back to try and undo his mistakes and also save his children from paying a potentially even greater price. This price that Leto too keeps hinting at from his dream visions. Right. So that bleeds a little bit into theory territory and perhaps I'm reading into things a little bit there. But to me, that seems like a plausible theory for why Paul has those tears in his eyes and why this is such an emotional sermon and how to square that with the fact that, well, he's prescient, so he'd technically know Leto's not dead. Yeah. Yeah, he sees maybe Leto's influence still in the future. Right. I think you're you're spot on with this. Like, he talks about Paul Muadib in no uncertain terms as being dead. And now he's equating what Leto too has done to what Paul has done, right? Remember what Paul did. Remember what Muadib did. Now Leto too has done the same. And everyone's like, is he? Wait, so Leto too is dead? And Ollie is like, wait, Leto too isn't dead? <laughs> yeah. You know, and yeah. it makes the most sense everything that he says and how he says it. It makes the most sense that he is not on a surface level like my son, that's my boy, that's my son, crying about <laughs> his dead son. It's more yeah. the terrible, terrible choices that I had to make and that it seems like my son now has to make. Right. Despite everything I tried to do for Johnny and for, you know, the Imperium, yeah. what have I done? Yeah. And it also explains his desperation to undo it all, right? He's like yeah. fucking frantically smashing that undo button. <laughs> but, you know, he's made too many edits to this fucking Word document. Oh, I hate that. There's no going back. Yeah. So it explains his desperation. He's like, maybe I can save my children from making these terrible decisions that I had to. Yeah. If I can just undo enough of this, if I can break down Wadib the myth, if I can end this empire, if I can remove Alia from power. And it explains why he's back and out here, yeah. like giving these sermons and trying so hard. It's true. It's a father protecting his children. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. My Tulelaxu eyes have not stopped watering all episode. <laughs> God damn it, Frank. From the moment I hit record <laughs> until the moment <laughs> we record the outro. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. And those are our takeaways for today's episode. So we're going to talk now about our spice morsels. We've got them ready to eat. Uh, but very quickly, we're going to take a break. So stick around. 
when we're back, we've got two morsels, only one of which is going to <laughs> tear up your mouth. <laughs> we'll be right back. Welcome back, folks. Let's wrap up today's episode by chomping down on some spice morsels. Hope you're hungry. <laughs> mm. So morsel number one for today, Shiga Wire. Delicious. <laughs> it is honestly shocking, Leo, that we haven't talked about this. I feel like Shiga Wire has definitely come up before. Yeah. And yet we've never done a morsel. So today's the day. Today's the day. In this episode's reading, Duncan and Jessica are brought before Faradin and quote, both were held down by deadly thin strands of Shiga wire, which would cut flesh at the slightest struggle, end quote. Mm. So what does that mean? What is Shiga wire? What is its purpose? Why are they tied up with it? Also, this is going to go super deep, dear listener. We're about to talk about monemic films and Shiga wire recordings because it's all related. So buckle up. That's why there's only two morsels today. They're big, <laughs> big morsels. Huge, thick. Thick morsels. <laughs> Jumbo slices. <laughs> it's enough slices. from the terminology of the imperium at the end of the first book we get this definition of shiga wire quote metallic extrusion of a ground vine narvi narvium grown only on seleucus secundus and three delta casing it is noted for extreme tensile strength end quote okay okay yeah that defines it a little bit for us sure very strong wire comes from a ground vine on seleucus secundus delta casing got it sure Let's go deeper. This is Gondibar, yes. baby. <laughs> of course. From the Dune Encyclopedia, we're given more information. This ground vine, called Narvi Narvium, naturally produces metallic crystals, and they range in diameter, quote, from monomolecular to one-tenth of a millimeter, end quote. Mm. Which already gives us a sense of where Shiga wire gets its sharpness. Right. Very, very tiny in diameter. The crystals have been found naturally occurring up to a kilometer in length, Crazy. especially on the older vines that have presumably been untouched and left to continue to grow and grow and grow. Mm-hmm. These crystals can also hold an electrical charge, which means that they carry recorded information like magnetic wire recordings in real life, basically. Right. And this is where the film books come in. Right. Because film books were recorded on thin wire because it was much more portable. It was ideal for space travel. You couldn't exactly pack all your favorite books. So you your took VHSs. Yeah. <laughs> your VHSs, your beta tapes, you know, <laughs> yeah. all of these old clunky things. What about my laser disc player? <laughs> <laughs> right. So Shiga wire became an optimal way to create these film books and a very portable way to transport them. Right. But before the discovery of Shiga wire Basically, there was old-fashioned, like, space wire that was used. (laughs) Sure. Not as efficient, not as tough as Shiga wire, of course. Right. Once Narvi Narvium was discovered, it very quickly replaced this old DIY method of film books, and Shiga wire became the popular way to do it. Right. And even by the time of Children of Dune, the film books are still made on Shiga wire. It is still the most popular method of producing and recording information on these film books. Yeah. Although these days, quote, more as a result of the convenience of film books than because of their low mass, end quote. Right. Yeah. Finally, to wrap up this enormous slice of a morsel, (laughs) 
The Dune Encyclopedia also touches on Shigawire recordings and film books and mnemic films. Right. These three different terms that we're going to very quickly define for you. Shigawire recordings is just the method, basically, of spooling this Shigawire into things that became film books. Right. So it, I guess you could replace that by saying tape recording is how you create the tape that right, holds right. the music. The term mnemic film, which we hear quite a bit throughout the Dune series, is actually reserved for the finest Shiga wire, the Shiga wire that is only a micron in diameter and is prized among spies and secret couriers for its portability. Right. So only the best. So in other words, if you recall that secret message that Thufir intercepted from the Harkonnens all the way back in Dune, that was on Minimic Film. That was on this highly coveted micron-wide ground vine crystal thing carrying a message through electrical charges. And now you know that. Yeah. How cool. And that very same crystal material that is used for these film books is what Duncan cuts his wrist on in today's reading. That Shigawire baby used for film books, very thin, very strong, and very deadly. So cool. Also, if you've seen the Dune movie, the thing Paul is watching at the beginning that's talking about like Muad'Dib among the trees and like, you know, the various things, like anytime you're seeing that stuff, a lot of that is mnemic film. Yeah. And like mnemic film books. So right. there's that Seleucus Secundan ground vine crystals <laughs> at play <laughs> on the big screen. Right. Exactly. That little like iPad thing he's holding probably has a coil of Shiga wire in there. With recordings on it. That's true. I love it. I love I love the extra world building details. This stuff is cool. Yeah, totally. All right. Our second big morsel is Sisselrads. Sisselrads. Lancerad, Sisselrad. There's a lot of S's and A's in that word. Sisselrad. I'm going to say Sisselrad. That feels like Lancerad, Sisselrad. Ah, okay. I like that. Yeah. Yes, whatever. So, attempting to distract Duncan Idaho for a potential kill strike. Hilarious. Foolish. Foolish idiot. Jessica says the following, quote, The Lancerad Council of the Great Houses, the regional Sisselrads, I said it differently, the regional Sisselrads, all deserve our, end quote. And while this very much failed to distract Duncan, he said as much, you're not doing it. You failed. <laughs> it failed to distract me. It succeeded in distracting us. So we're going to talk about Sisalrads and what we know about the fancy term. Quickly, if it sounds unfamiliar to you, it's because it is. <laughs> this is the first time that we're getting the term in these first three books. Yeah. I did not do a word search on the later books, but I did the first three. This is the only time it's used. <laughs> From the Dune Encyclopedia, here's what we learn about Sisalrads in all of their bureaucratic glory. Basically... Even with the Lancerad, the galaxy is just too big of a place with way too many planets and populations to be, like, effectively governed. Just too many different needs, too many complaints about regional governors and blah, blah, blah. So further subsidiary governmental structures are totally necessary. Sisalrads are the biggest of these subcategories of the Lancerad, and they would screen matters so that the senior body didn't have to deal with too much of the like minutia of the of the galaxy right right i think about like the supreme court 
only gets stuff once it's passed through subsidiary courts, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, regarding how much each sisal rad governs, it's a little bit mushy. There's clearly a wide margin. Uh, we are told that each sisal rad represents between two and five districts, and then each district is between two and five solar systems. <laughs> so uh, between four and 25 solar systems <laughs> per sisal rad. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Such a big range. We are told, helpfully, that in Dune, when we're talking about these solar systems, solar systems rarely have more than one habitable planet. So we can also say each sisal rad is handling the governance of four to 25 planets, basically. Right. That's, the, that's about the scope. And there is more to say. There's a ton of details provided by the Dune Encyclopedia as part of a broader Landsrad conversation, like how often they meet and things like that. None of it's really relevant. I just wanted to dive into Sisalrads because, first of all, it's fun to say. Second of all, it does seem like when Jessica brings it up, talking to Duncan, she is 100% like going to go off in some weird philosophical abstract thing about like the most boring part of politics. Yeah. Clearly... That was her intention. This is not some poignant thing that she was about to say. And that's Sisal Rads. Right. Sisal Rads. So funny. Just imagining that in the middle of a resignation, Jessica's like, so the midterm elections. Um. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I've been investigating the gerrymandering of the northern uh, four states. He's like, you're yeah. not distracting me. This sucks. So funny. Right. With that extra context, it kind of makes that pivot even more hilarious. <laughs> yeah. As if she could actually distract Duncan with the midterms. Sisal rad. He already voted. God damn it. <laughs> He's like, I can name every Sisal rad. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. That wraps up this monstrosity of an episode. What a journey these chapters were. Indeed. For the next book club episode, dear listener, here is your assignment. Yes. You'll want to read up through page 395 in the paperback copy, or if you have a different version than us, read through the chapter that ends on the sentence, quote, I wish it had been me the tiger killed instead of him. End quote. <laughs> I wonder who's saying that. Hmm. <laughs> Can't wait. Can't wait. Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic. So help spread the word of Madib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lord Party Podcast Network on LordParty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path. In other words, if everyone remembers all the way back in Dune when... I said that so weirdly. What the fuck? <laughs> in Dune? In Dune? <laughs> <laughs> That's how you say it. <laughs>